This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Saturday, and Saturday was in an abusive relationship with an unhinged narcissist. It's a story of threats, reactive abuse, stalking, smear campaigns, shame, divorce, and the safety of a stepchild. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of domestic violence. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently at NarcissistApocalypse.com and you want to be a guest on our show, go to the top of the page at NarcissistApocalypse.com. There's a button that says Guest Form. Click on that button. It takes you to a page with all of our instructions. Fill out the form and we will go from there. And also at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have a community support button at the top of the page, and that takes you to our very own safe social network. Our community members are on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings on Wednesdays and Saturday nights. And we also have on there meditation nights. We have closure ceremonies. Our community members are on there. They're all amazing. They're there to support you. So if you want to get more support, go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and press that community support button at the top of the page. And another way to get some support is to go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing, connect you with local resources like shelters, and they will help you find ways to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource. Hey everyone, we have a new friend and sponsor of the show this week, and it is Bloomer's Trading Company. Bloomer's Trading Company hand makes stylish garlands for modern events and home and wants you to enjoy finally gathering with your friends and loved ones this holiday season. Bloomer's Trading Company is known worldwide for their like real, durable holiday and Christmas garlands, and if you order before November 20th, Bloomer's Trading Company is offering listeners to this show 10% off. 
So head on over to bloomerstradingco.com for 10% off all your holiday and Christmas garlands now. These always sell out fast, and I don't want you to miss out this holiday season. These garlands are beautiful. So please do go and head over to bloomerstradingco.com, and that will also be in our show notes if you don't remember it right now off the top of your head. But they are beautiful, beautiful, beautiful garlands. You have to go take a look at them. And now, before we start off our show, I just want to say uh, a big thank you to Saturday for, you know, really, you you lived this whole entire episode with her. She did a really good job of all the, like, explaining all these little tiny things that were going on. She was did a great job of giving us a vocabulary for uh, her feelings, situations, she, you know, it was, it's really hard to do this, uh, to be a guest on the show. It's not easy. It's not easy to tell your story. And she was uh, wonderful. So a big thank you to Saturday. And now, without further ado, here is my episode with Saturday. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Saturday. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. And today we are going to hear your story. And you are someone who was in relationship and that person had a daughter and you grew close to your stepdaughter or your eventual stepdaughter and the push and pull there of, you know, her still being in that situation, uh, is a very, very difficult one. And you had to maneuver your way out and you wanted to protect them at the same time. And there were just so many other things going on with addiction and and other possible mental health stuff and, and figuring out what is what and what is abuse. So, uh, a big thank you for being here and sharing your story. And now without further ado, Saturday, the floor is now yours. All right. So I'm going to start my story with some background information about me. Um, I've always been pretty adventurous, and I was really excited to get out and see the world. Um, I grew up in Connecticut, and I went to New York for college, and pretty much immediately after, I took a job abroad. Um, and was traveling and working all over the globe. And at the start of 2015, I got really, really sick. And after months of time in the hospital and time with doctors and having to move back to the States and back in with my parents in Connecticut, um, I ended up diagnosed with lupus. And lupus is a chronic autoimmune disease where your immune system is attacking your body's own tissues. Um, And it's chronic, which means there's no cure. It can go through periods of flares when disease activity is high and remissions when disease activity is low or non-existent. But if you have it, it's something you have to manage the rest of your life. Um, In that first year, it was really, really difficult. Um, And looking back, kind of now going through this other very traumatic time of my life with my ex, um, it's been helpful to kind of think back with that first year of lupus and how I felt just incredibly depressed because I was so sick and I didn't 
believe that I was going to get better fully. Um, you know, for six months, I couldn't work. I was sleeping like 16 hours a day, terrible joint pain, fatigue. And it was really hard to believe that things would get better. Um, but I did get better. And in August of 2015, I was well enough. I could get my own apartment and I took a job as a teacher. And I started trying to build a community because, again, I'd grown up in Connecticut, but I left, you know, right at college. I'd been gone for about a decade, so I didn't really know anyone there. Um, so as one does, I was going on a lot of Tinder dates. So be- so before we get to the Tinder dates, when it comes to who you are as a person, you know, your family, how you were raised, mm-hmm. uh, belief systems or anything like that, were there things um, like belief systems you had or, uh, uh, you know, insecurities you had uh, growing up? Um, I mean, I I look back really fondly on my childhood. Um, my parents, they divorced when I was in middle school. Um, and my dad was definitely, he was loud. He would yell, um, you know, the way he spoke to my mom wasn't appropriate. I wouldn't say to the level of, you know, he was a narcissist. Um, but it, I think I had a really good model in my mom that, you know, this behavior is not acceptable. And when somebody's treating you in a way that's not acceptable, you don't have to take it. Um, And I just have a really large family, lots of extended, you know, aunts, uncles, um, so a lot of support. And I think people have always asked me, you know, you're so brave for moving abroad. I'd never be able to do that. I'm so scared. And I always said, well, I have a huge safety net. If anything happens, I have, you know, a dozen homes that I could show up on the front door of and they take me right in. So I definitely um, am very grateful to have of that family um and that's always been kind of important and so you are now going on these tinder dates and you have relatively normal healthy self-esteem and um you know a, a regular normal upbringing nothing in your opinion uh is particularly wrong in any sort of way you you you've got your shit together and you are adventurous Mm-hmm. And, you know, now you're dating. Yep. Um, and so in December, I matched with my ex. And our first date was really fun. Um, he definitely had a really good sense of kind of all the best places to go. And he was really attentive, super interested in what I was saying. Conversation flowed naturally. And in those first two weeks, I think we went on like four dates, which is a lot. Um, but I, I didn't know anyone. So I was totally down. This guy wants to take me out to like all the cool new restaurants. Let's do it. Um, and we were having great time, but right at the end of those two weeks, I ended up getting really sick again. And with lupus, um, because what's happening is your immune system has gone haywire and it's attacking your own body. The medication you take to stop that from happening, it's usually an immunosuppressant. But what that means is if you do get a common cold or a virus or flu, that things can spiral super quickly because your immune system can't fight it off. 
So that's what happened to me. I picked up something at the school, ended up in the hospital for a week, and my ex would visit every day after work. And so he met my parents in the hospital room, and I think that definitely pushed things along even faster. Um, and then things were generally good. I mean, it wasn't like an ideal fairy tale romance, but it was a good relationship. Um, he worked for a pretty big entertainment media company in Connecticut, and that job gave him access to kind of all the who's who of the state. So he's schmoozing with all these people, which meant we had invites and tickets to kind of any event, any concert, any opening, any game that I wanted. I got to meet the Lumineers. I, you know, had sweet seeds for Kevin Hart and Bill Burr. And it was just this like cocktail party wonderland, which was super fun. I'm really open to anything. This is a lifestyle I hadn't really experienced before. So it was a, it was just a good time. Um, and then he also had a daughter who was three years old when we met. And she and I bonded really, really quickly. Um, you know, so those first two, two and a half years, my ex, he made it very clear that he's really into me. We're doing lots of fun things. And he was very openly proud of me. So all of these events we're going to, he's introducing me to everyone, telling them, you know, she's such a good educator. Um, she's so well-traveled. And I think really the biggest thing that I would kind of hear negative about him was that he could come across as arrogant. Like he definitely was a name dropper. He liked to make sure he had pictures with celebrities and he was super, super, super into social media. Like he would get upset um, if he posted something on Facebook and I didn't like it. And I'd be like, are we in high school? Like, and I like it, I'm just going to tell you in person when I see you. And he'd say, no, no, that's that's unsupportive. Like, my work, they, they want to make sure I'm active. You have to like it. And I'd end up just pulling up Facebook and going through and like, 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 like. Here you go. Do you feel supported? Um, so, you know, that's kind of annoying, but relatively harmless. So within this time, you're experiencing you know, this very lively person, he's attentive to your needs. He's there every day after you're sick mm -hmm. uh, at the hospital. He's meeting your family. He's putting on, uh, you know, he's showing a really good side of him. He, uh, you know, obviously you can see that he's into appearances. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel like during this time that you are part of that appearance? Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely, wanted to show me off. Um, and part of it, one of the big red flags during this time, um, was, which I'll get into was kind of how his relationship with his daughter's mother had ended. And so I think especially he wanted to show people, look at this great relationship I'm in now. And look, anything you may have heard about that other relationship, it can't be true because look at how well I treat this person. Look at how well I'm treating Saturday. And look at how well we get along. So I think there is also an aspect of that. And you're in the hospital. I'm there. I'm taking care of you. So he can throw that on top of everything just to say to everyone else, he's the opposite of what the other person is saying about them. Yeah, he definitely, I mean, throughout the relationship, he would always bring up 
Like I took care of you the whole time you were in the hospital. And I'd be like, the nurses took care of me. You know, you came and you sat, which was nice. I, I appreciate when people visit me in the hospital, but the way he talked, it was like, you know, he had the lab coat on and was saving my life. So going back, I think now to kind of the red flags during that time, because generally, you know, things are going good, but the three things that kind of stick out, um, the first one is that relationship with his daughter's mother. So he told me very early on, he said, you know, I need to be transparent with you. Um, my daughter's mother she got me charged with a domestic violence and has a protection from abuse order against me. Um, and she had me violated on that PFA as well. And that was definitely concerning. But he had this brilliantly crafted story that explained everything away. So he said, I mean, it had him being so remorseful and, um, he, they were living with her parents, um, and her dad, like, I think the electricity bill, something was in his name. And so my ex would be giving him money to pay the bills. And he said her dad would just pocket the money and I'd get home from work and the electric would be off in the house and my baby would be sitting there with you know, no electricity, and I'd have to take my family and go stay in a hotel, and that he and his ex would, you know, fight about this, obviously, and he said, we, you know, we're having a big fight about this, and I picked up a coffee cup, and I threw it at the wall, and I didn't throw it at her, but it doesn't matter. I shouldn't have done that. I can't imagine how scary that was for her, um, and that's what my domestic violence charge was from, and he said, once I did that, I realized, like, we need some space now. And I took my baby and, you know, buckled her in the car seat, and I just went out for a drive. And then the next thing I know, the police are pulling me over, and they're saying, you know, you have to give us your daughter. And they're trying to take her from me. And I, you know, I said, you're not, you're not going to take my baby. Um, and I said, and he said, I told them, you know, if you come near me, I'll kill us all before you get this child. And again, he's saying, I, you know, that's my big mouth. Of course I didn't mean it, but how terrifying for me to say that I take full responsibility. I shouldn't have done that. Um, and, you know, through kind of being charged, they had me do a domestic violence class. And I just, I went all in and I really recognized that I had to take better control of my anger and they told me the social worker leading the class said that I was one of her best students. She asked me to come back and talk to other men. And I come back and I volunteer to help other men um, now as a way to give back. And this was a story, again, kind of all of those cocktail parties and the people we're meeting, they all know this story. And they're all telling me, yeah, can you imagine? I mean, he just had that one incident and his ex, she really like threw him up against the wall and she just wrung him dry and she's such an awful person and we're so glad he has you. Um, and everybody believes the story. That is a very, very well-crafted story. Every little nuance of that story is perfectly crafted. Yeah. He, I mean, in, in his media company, he worked in sales. So he is an amazing 
salesman. Every, every, every word and point in that story is perfectly placed. Yes. Um, and it's, it's often how he would do these stories where he is being remorseful and admitting to something that is bad, but not so bad. Um, and, you know, later on, I will tell you guys the real story of what happened. And it's very different. Um, and he would just kind of pick, what can I tell to show that, yes, something happened, but to make me look the best I can. Um, and so that was, you know, the first big red flag, but everybody believed his story. My family believed it. I believed it. So it wasn't as big of a red flag at the time. Well, here's a red flag that in turn makes him the victim and he it's reversed completely mm-hmm. like he's made to be seen at the end of the story like a saint who's helping others yes that's the really interesting like it's all you know interesting but that's the really interesting that he took this negative extreme negative and he made it public and turned it in his favor and publicly doing it Absolutely. And this also, you know, when I met him, it was, I think, maybe two years later after this point. Um, And his ex would frequently kind of ghost when it's time for visitation. She just wouldn't answer her phone. She wouldn't bring their daughter. And so that was something everybody knew. Like, look at what a dirtbag this woman is, that I made one mistake, and now she's holding it over my head. She's not letting me see my daughter. Um, so that just kind of built into this narrative of he made one mistake and, you know, now he's nailed to the cross for it. And don't we all feel sorry for him? He's masterful. Yes. If that's a way to put it right there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the, the first big flag. And the other two, those were times in our relationship in those first two, two and a half years where he just lost control of himself. So like we're saying, where he is so masterful with language and he usually has such control, there were two times where, you know, that mask just slipped. And the first time we just moved into, um, or I moved into his apartment with him because my lease was up. We've been dating about nine months at this point. And I was going out with some friends um, and I'd asked him to just come pick me up. So I, you know. I'm not going to drink and drive, no problem. Um, and I had texted him, okay, I'm about ready to leave. So he's headed out to the bar where I'm at. And by the time that he'd gotten there, my friends, they'd wanted, you know, to walk to another bar. So I, you know, told him, oh, actually drive down the street. I'm at bar B now. And I get into his car and he just lost it like just screaming that I was so disrespectful. Um, you know, I'm, uh, how could I do this? He, I told him to go somewhere and he had to drive down the street and do I have no respect for him? He didn't know where I was. And I remember just being silent in the car as we drove home because it was so out of character and his reaction was, it was so inappropriate for the situation. 
and that it was hard for me to even process what is going on here. Um, and so we got back to the apartment and we got inside and I, I said, you know, I, I need some space. And I went into the bedroom and closed the door and he, you know, ripped it open and he's just continuing to shout at me. And so I said, all right, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, and I, you know, grabbed my wallet and went to walk out and he grabbed my arms and he pushed me back in and he said, you're going to talk to me, uh, like an adult, I'm an adult. You're going to talk to me. And that was something he would frequently do throughout the relationship is hold me hostage in arguments where I'd say, you know, I, I'm not comfortable continuing this. Like I, I'm feeling scared. Like I'm feeling heightened. We need to take a break. We need to take five minutes and take some, you know, take a breather. And he would not ever respect that. And he'd say, you need to treat me like an adult. We need to talk right now, um, which isn't appropriate when, you know, the minute somebody reacts in a way that is so out of line, it doesn't matter what the other person did. Like that goes away because that person's reaction is so inappropriate. So I, you know, at that time I said, if you're not going to let me go, I'm going to call the police and, you know, they will make you. And I took my phone out and he grabbed it from my hand and he threw it so hard that it embedded into the sheetrock of the wall. Um, and I had never been in a situation like that before. And I just ripped my phone from the wall and I ran out and he chased me out and he's screaming and he's apologizing and crying. And, you know, I said, I, we're done. Like we are done. And I think I went to a friend's house or my sister's house somewhere. Um, but then he wore me down. And, you know, a couple weeks later, we're meeting to talk things over. And he... So how far into the relationship are you at this point? So this is like nine months in. So when you say he wore you down, what were the things that he was doing? Um, a big thing was his daughter. So who I was very, very close with and, you know, saying, you know, she's so heartbroken. She cried the whole time she was here. She misses you so much. Um, and then he also would always bring up, he had another, his other favorite well-crafted story to tell was that he, his mother was abusive. Um, and so he has PTSD from his mother's abuse and, any time, you know, that I would try and tell him your behavior is inappropriate, it would end up where he's crying about his childhood. And don't you know, my mom, she used to hold me down and she'd bite me. What kind of a person would do that? And he's crying. And, oh, I, I hate telling people this story. I hate being emotional in front of people. But he would tell everybody about his mom and the abuse because, again, he'd get such great reactions and sympathy from people. Um, so here he is, he's playing on your guilt with the daughter mm -hmm. to bring you back. And then he's giving his victim playing spiel about his abuse from his mom, which is not taking responsibility for his actions and blaming it on something else completely. And also gets you to, feel bad for him taking everything off of you and 
in this situation where you just kind of forget and you're feeling bad. <clears throat> you're feeling uh, guilty for the way he was raised. You're feeling guilty for uh, his daughter. And here's that's the beginning part of the pull. Probably a, a lot of little other things going on in between as well. But that's a strong pull and excuses at the same time. Definitely. Um, and then, and so that was in 2016, that incident. And then things, again, are relatively calm going well until early 2018. And at this time, we purchased a home together. We are engaged. Um, and we were at a family event. And he, even just going there, his energy was so chaotic. Like he was just very, very high strung from the beginning. And within an hour of being there, he was just completely belligerent. Um, he was trying to fight my brother. Um, I was crying. He's telling me, you know, you're too sensitive for crying. And my parents are there. They're like, you're, you're all done. You gotta go. Um, he, you know, told my stepdad like that he was going to fight him. It was just a mess. Um, but how did that start? What was the little thing that set him off? So I think honestly, what set him off, um, was this event, my stepdad, it was Valentine's day actually. And he, my stepfather is a really amazing cook. Um, and he does a seven course Valentine's meal. And has like 20 people come. It's very hard to get an invite. Um, <laughs> I think I'll barely make the list this year. But my ex doesn't like not being in the spotlight. So we're at this event where everybody's telling my stepdad, oh my God, like this course is amazing. And look how you plated this. And the attention's not on him. And so I think that put him on edge. Um, and then he wanted to get that attention to him. So he would bring up topics that he knew were controversial, like a big thing with the election and Trump. Like he loved to talk about Trump, but he didn't really like, he doesn't really like Trump. He just would like to bring it up to get people riled up because he knew it would make them upset. So that's what he was doing. Um, and he was definitely goading my brother um, and got my brother you know, to get argumentative with him. And then once that happened, he just escalated it. So he's creating a reactive abuse situation within the family in this situation, knowing what will trigger them. Yes. And so when your family sees this, you know, what do they say to you? Um, so he, you know, he left and I'm, there with my family and I'm sobbing. Our wedding is planned. Everything's booked. Everything's paid for. It is happening a few months later. Um, so there was so much stress about that. And I, you know, I'm like, I have to call this wedding off and, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. And I, all the money and I, you know, and they said, it's, you know, my family said, that's, that's fine. It's, it's money. Like it, it's no problem. You, this is not, okay this person is not okay um but again he wore me down and he wore my family down like he wrote these long letters to my parents apologizing and at that point he said oh I you know I just got a prescription for Ativan and anxiety medication and I didn't know that you couldn't drink on it 
and that's what happened. It was the medication, and that's not me. And he was so, so apologetic. And again, just crafting these stories when he's talking to us that, um, you know, three months later, we're getting married. Um, And he also, during these times, I mean, he would send an overwhelming onslaught of messages, phone calls, and it's where you can't even think because he's just rapid fire sending you things. Um, And I went through some of kind of the old texts, um, just kind of in advance of talking with you. And the texts are things, you know, I'll fix it. I'll have a therapist today. Here's the therapist. This is the number. Call the therapist. Talk to them. Please don't make this decision. Please. I fucked up. Please. Please. I'm in tears. This is from my past. I'm so embarrassed. It's it's my my cooped up hurt in my heart. Like those are the actual texts he's sending me. And so within this specific situation where he's um, his mask has slipped and now he's trying to uh, get you back, he's using an overwhelming amount of messages to not let you process what has just happened, taking the focus off of you going internally to figure things out. So you focus on these external things that he's saying. And if you get hooked into those external things that he is saying and start the process of following those things that are being said, you're stopping yourself from going and looking internally and processing what's actually happening. Is that fair to say? Yes. Um, when I look back on this, um, and in just general self-reflection, you know, I, before this happened, I always would say I'm such an advocate, um, you know, for people who have been in domestic violence situations and have been in this abusive situation. But also I think at the same time, kind of in the back of my head, I was still like, but I'd never be in that situation. Like I, I, I advocate and I support anyone who's been in this, but I would leave. Um, And then, you know, when obviously I didn't, and part of that is it's honestly like being in a burning building when you're with someone like this and that there's so much chaos and uh, such an emergency all around you. You don't have time to even make a plan for the next hour. You're trying to just get through the next five minutes. You know, and in the same time with this, again, he's really bringing up his daughter, Um, you know, and she's so excited to be the flower girl at the wedding. And, you know, please don't do this to us. Please don't do this. My ex says that she's not going to let me see my daughter unless you're there. And please, please, um, you know, so I took him back and. It will, can I stop you for one second there? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting burning building analogy of what you're of, of everything. <clears throat> I think in my mind of how I see it is you two are he put he caused a fire. You're on like the thirtieth mm-hmm. floor, or let's say a fifty yeah. floor building, and who knows where you are, but you're in there pretty deep. Yeah, and he caused it, and then he's asking you to help put out this fire. Or he's yeah. trying to, and he's saying, come here, take this extinguisher with me. Let's put out this fire here together. Come on, we're going to do that together. When in fact, you know, you should just head for the exit, and he's trying to stop you from actually 
exiting the building. He's yeah. trying to just put out the fire still until the fire is gone. Everything is burnt around you, but you're still going to stay in that building and continue on going upward where yes. that would that be fair to say? Is that a good analogy? Yeah. And with his daughter, it's like where, you know, there's the exit. And then he's saying, well, hold on my, you know, my stepdaughter, she's, she's right in this room. You're going to leave. She's in that burning room. You've got to go and put that fire out. Um, and, and again, and this wasn't happening all the time, the vast majority of this time, like, again, we're going to all these events and he's bringing me lunch at work and he's waking up early to clear the snow off my car. And he's making sure that everyone knows how much he loves me and how much he appreciates me. And so everything's really good, 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 good. And then it's like these episodes happen and who is this person? And so I think kind of dissociating with, okay, that was some weird, crazy thing. And that's not him. Like this, the person I love is him and this monster isn't him. And that was just a one-time thing. And then it's, well, it was just a two-time thing. And, you know, then it goes and goes. Um, And with this also, even when I say, you know, the relationship was generally good for those first two years, looking back, there is that slow creep where he definitely was testing boundaries from the very start. And the second you would give with one thing, then the goalpost would move and he'd want something else. And even though, you know, at the beginning I said, I generally had good boundaries. I had good self-esteem. When you're with someone like this, it just chips away at that. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm two and a half years in and I'm walking on eggshells and wondering how is everything always my fault? Um, And he was so good with words that he would always make it seem like it was my fault. And it wouldn't be until like a week later when I had time to process where I'd be like, hold on, like that, that wasn't on me. Um, And he, you know, he never expressly told me not to do something, but he would throw such a tantrum if I did something he didn't like. Like if I wanted to go on a girl's trip, fine, fine, have a great time. But somehow, anytime something like that was happening, I'd end up having to listen to like a three-hour cry fest about God knows what. Um, And I wouldn't get to enjoy my trip because he'd be messaging and calling me so much. And then eventually I just wouldn't go. And there's that metaphor um, of the frog and the boiling pot of water that's really relevant, where if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it's going to jump out immediately. But if you put it in a pot of lukewarm water and you slowly warm it to boiling, the frog's going to stay in that pot until it's cooked alive. For for all intents and purposes, getting when you got into this relationship, you know, you hear about these types of people and stories in the newspaper and movies, books. Mm-hmm. You had never encountered someone like this. This isn't something you were looking for or aware of. So, no. so for you you know, you're seeing this is at really face value and, Mm -hmm. you know, have no frame of reference of what is actually happening. This isn't even in your vocabulary at all. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, you know, and so he, 
convinced me not to leave him. And we went through with the wedding um, and the marriage. It started off with a bang because he got pushed out of that high power job that he loved so much. And in that job, he got so much attention. Um, and I think his whole sense of self and all of his self-esteem came from that job. And so when he lost it, he just started spiraling. And that's when, you know, late 2018, 2019, that's when the verbal abuse and physical intimidation and gaslighting really, really picked up. Um, And he was just in chaos all the time. Issues at work, issues with friends, issues with the utility company, issues with his daughter's mother. It was just everything was chaotic with him. And so again, I never had time to process anything. So here is a moment where your ex loses control a lot in his own life. And if people understand abusers and this type of stuff, it's all about power and control. And with him now losing power within his own life in a way where how he's seen by people, he now starts to crank control over you as his loss of control in other places intensifies. And as that mask slips more and more, he's probably going to try and keep that control in any way possible when things start slipping further and further away. And if you eventually do start standing up for yourself. He would try and bring me down to make himself feel, feel better. Okay. Yes. Um, and, and always, again, trying to use his childhood as a reason to excuse everything. And I remember saying over and over, you can't use your mental health to punish me. Like, there's no, I was abused, and so now I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, and I think having lupus, I see it the same way as it would be really inappropriate for me to say, you know, hey, all these doctor visits and the medications and the blood work and the injections I have to give myself, they suck. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to do it. So I'm just not going to, and I'm going to get sicker and sicker, and... I'm going to be more dependent on you and expect you to caretake and expect you to do everything for me. And if you don't want to, I'm going to say you're a terrible person for not caring that I have this illness. So it doesn't matter if it's mental health or physical health. If you have a illness, you have to do your part, be it seeing a doctor, a therapist, taking medication as prescribed. You have to do that first. And if you're not going to do that, then nobody else owes you anything. But he, you know, refused to get any help for his mental health. Um, And end of 2019, things are really starting to circle the drain. Like I, at this point, I'm working full time. I've just started grad school, dealing with my health. um, And we are just fighting all the time. And one of the big things we would fight about was his daughter. Um, And I want to make it clear, I love my stepdaughter. Um, She was such, I used to call her a little duckling when I met her at three because she would just kind of follow me around everywhere. Um, And I work in education. I work with kids. She's such an easy kid. Um, And she's now, she's nine years old now, and she has some real sass. 
Um, but she's still just such a good kid. Um, but you know, in 2019, she's seven, eight years old. Um, and kids at that age, they really want adult attention. Um, and especially with grad school and work and lupus, I often on the weekends would really just have to be in bed. Um, and I'd always make sure that she and I did something special when she visited, not elaborate, but just like we'd go for a walk in the woods together, or we'd go run errands or bake something. Um, but the rest of the time, you know, I tell my ex, this is your kid. Like you need to be parenting. Um, and he, that would infuriate him because he loved having his daughter there. He loved taking pictures and posting them on social media and look, look what a great father I am. Um, but he had no idea how to interact with her. And I think my ex, he couldn't get past seeing his daughter as a possession to be able to see her as a person, which is so sad because she's one of the greatest kids. Like he just truly missed out. Um, and with her as well, she didn't really want anything to do with him because she felt that. Um, and so she would want to be with me all weekend. And I, you know, would say to him, I can't do this. This isn't my kid. I, I, I can't work all the time in grad school and then take care of her. Um, and that was when he would, you know, say, you're cold as ice. You're ice cold. You have no feeling. You're heartless. How can you say she's not your kid? Um, but with this situation, I mean, I'm a stepchild. And I won the step-parent lottery with my stepdad. Um, I mean, he's one of the greatest people. I love him. He's my family. I'm so supported by him. But he's not my dad. I have a dad. And so it's the same with my stepdaughter. I love her so much. She's my family. I'm there for her. But I'm not her mom. He has a great mom. Um, and obviously, there are step-parents where the biological parent's not in the picture, and they have a very different relationship. They are the parent in that relationship. Um, but this one, she had a mom and a dad. And my role, um, it should have been essentially like a, you know, really cool aunt. And my ex could not handle that. He wanted me to be the primary parent, and he wanted him to be the one that doesn't do anything. Um, and so that was something we argued about a lot. Um, and we also fought a lot about finances. He was really bad with money. Uh, when we were buying our house, his credit was abysmal. And the mortgage broker said, you know, add him to your credit cards. It'll help build his credit. So I'd done that. And I'd opened up two new cards with, um, you know, big box stores. And we used it to purchase like a snowblower and a stove. And we paid it off immediately. Um and in 2019, we had about $20,000 in credit card debt, um, which was high. But he had a decent job. My job was good. Our income was quite high. So there's no way that that wouldn't have been paid off, you know, by the end of the year. Um, and he, at this point, was handling all the finances, we had a joint account, but he had kind of everything in his name, all the username, passwords. So I wasn't really checking things. Um, but at the end of 2019, I got an email notification that there was a missed payment on my Discover card. And I pushed because he did not want to give me the login information. 
Um, but I pushed and pushed and those two cards that I'd opened, um, and, you know, thought that they were all paid off. He had maxed them both out. So $40,000 and that $20,000 balance that should have been paid off. He maxed all of those cards off too. Um, and that was devastating. Um, I have always been very, very, very good with money. Like I had a job at 16. I worked full time through college. I've always lived within my means and finding out that he'd ruined that and not just ruined. I mean, he he utterly fucked me. (laughs) Like it was just a punch in the gut. And so end of 2019, that's when I said, I want a divorce. Like I'm, I'm all done. Um, and I switched from being someone who before, even though we were fighting, I was still trying to figure out how do we make this work? And I switched from that person to somebody who wanted nothing to do with him. And that made his abuse so much worse. Um, you know, because when I look back and say, you know, that things were fine before, it's really that I'm pretty easygoing and I was going along with whatever he wanted. So we didn't have a reason to explode. And so now at the end of 2019, I just switched into I am all set. I'm not doing this. And it just escalated him. Um, and he at this time, he tried to appeal to my parents. It was around Christmas and my mom, I remember she took me aside and she said, hey, you know, I, I, I talked to my ex and you really need to let up with the finances. It's the holidays. Like it, he came to me, he was in tears. He's so upset. He just wants to get you a small gift. And you told him, you know, no gifts. And I, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't want to tell my parents kind of how much shit I was in. (laughs) Like I, um, and not that I thought, you know, they wouldn't be mad. Um, but it's just that shame of, Oh my God, how, how did this happen? Um, and he definitely was trying to take advantage of that, of knowing, well, Saturday doesn't want people to know. So I can tell this story in a way that makes me again, look good and look like the victim. Um, but at that point I was so angry (laughs) that I, you know, I told my mom, I said, did he tell you why I said no gifts? Like, did he tell you how much debt he put me in? And obviously he'd left that out. Um, But that was very typical where he would try and go to my parents or my friends and tell them this really one-sided story and then show me texts and be like, see, they, they're on my side. They think you're unreasonable. And once I told them the truth, they were like, you know, they're like, what a fucking asshole. Like, thank God you're getting divorced. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was a really shitty Christmas that year. Um, I made sure my stepdaughter had a good Christmas, um, you know, and told my ex, let's, uh, you know, can we do this amicably? Can we, you know, just get one lawyer and figure this out and be done? Um, but he told me, you know, we're never going to pay off this debt. We, you know, we may need to file for bankruptcy. We have to get a financial advisor. I, I've got us a consult. Let's fix the finances and then we'll do the divorce. Um, and again, you know, he beat me down into this where, okay, we're going to do the finances, but we're separated. 
and then we'll get the divorce. Um, but it's all bullshit. He's not getting, you know, the financial advisor, the bankruptcy lawyer, any information they need. He's blocking my access to finances. And it's just constant, constant, constant chaos and abuse and screaming at me at the house. I mean, of he knew, I think, um, cunt is just, it's, it's a gross word to call someone. And, you know, I told him that once. And it's not, that just became what he would scream at me all the time. You fucking cunt, you fat cunt, all the time, over and over and over and over to where, I mean, it lost its meaning. I was like, I, you say it so much, I don't even care anymore. But that was kind of the verbal abuse that he'd be doing. Um, and again, with this, I go back to that burning building situation of, obviously, I should have gotten my own bank account, gotten a lawyer, moved out. But I was so overwhelmed it's like you're paralyzed um and you you can't even make that plan um and my ex definitely during this time every second I was in the house with him I was being held hostage in conversation where he you know listen to me apologize listen to how sad I am listen to my abuse story like please my PTSD my mom and I was just shutting down and I'd frequently say like, I'm bored of this conversation. I'm bored of your PTSD. I'm so bored with your abuse story. Um, and I'd say, you know, if you want to talk to me, my therapy rate is a hundred dollars an hour. If you mention your mom, I want a hundred dollars. And then he would of course say, you are so cold. You are a cold bitch. You're an unfeeling cunt. Um, and I'm not any of those things. I'm a very empathetic, loving person. But I was so done. And, uh, you know, now being outside of it, I've read about reactive abuse and understand, you know, when you're pushed so much, you do react that way. Um, But at the time, it was really easy for me to be like, you know, that was not a nice thing to say. Like, that was, that's awful to say when somebody's talking to you about a traumatic situation to say, oh, my therapy rate's $100. I'm, I'm bored hearing about this. You know, so you're second guessing yourself and thinking, am I in the wrong here? And you're not. The person you're with is manipulative and making you insane. Um, And that was what was going on. Um, And he, again, you know, is telling me things, making himself the victim. So he would say things like, I'm so nauseous, I can't lay down. My stomach hurts so bad from the guilt to the pain I caused you. I'm hurting so bad, I can't sleep. Those kind of things. Before you were going along with things and Mm -hmm. you'd have these things that would pop up, you know, but for a lot of the time, things were okay. And then when you stood up for yourself... And we're like, I'm not doing this anymore. Now things got a lot worse. So, you know, where, like, what were, I guess, the escalations that were way bigger than you ever thought was possible? I think just in general, when you're with someone like this, it is not safe to stand up for yourself and remain in the house with them. Um, And I, I was feeling so taken advantage of and weak. And I, 
I had this misguided thought that, you know, I'm going to be strong and I'm going to fight back with him. And he would, you know, he'd start throwing things, he breaking windows. It was not safe. Um, and I, I had like a, a wrong thought in my head that if, you know, if I leave and go stay with my parents, that's, you know, then I'm so weak. Like I'm not independent. I'm back, like almost right back when I was so sick with lupus and had to live with them for six months. Um, and I was wanting so much to be independent and to handle this myself. And so definitely I, I should have reached out for help before. Um, and when I, I did in 2020, um, I, you know, things had just escalated and he was really holding me hostage and I would try, I would get in my car and just drive to like a parking lot to get some space and go and cry in like the grocery store parking lot. And then he would show up with his car and he was tracking, you know, he had a GPS tracker and would follow me. So I could never get away with him. Um, and at that point it was in June and I was in a parking lot because I left from a fight and I called my mom and I just burst into tears when she answered. And I said, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, and so I, you know, had some stuff with me, but I couldn't find my work computer. Um, and he had hidden it. And so I called the police, my parents came with me. Um, and the stuff that my ex was messaging me at this time, it was really unhinged. So beginning of the relationship where he had these really well-crafted stories. Now it is very clear that there's something going on. There's some mental health issue. Um, and so I, at the police station, I was there with my parents and I said, you know, I, I'm worried if you guys show up in a cop car, he's going to do something to hurt himself or to hurt someone else. Um, and so we made a plan where we like parked on the street where he couldn't see and we walked up because I thought that would be less threatening. So even though, you know, I am done with the relationship and I'm angry with him, I, I don't want him to get hurt. Um, and so we, you know, went up with the police to go and get my computer and he came running out and he is just screaming every other word is cunt, 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 cunt. And he's calling my parents, you're a fucking bitch, you're, you're a fucking cunt. And, um, and that was really terrifying because he had always been manipulative and narcissistic, but something had snapped. He did not have control. He's acting like this in front of the police. Um, and my mom and I, we went in the house and there were windows broken. There's glass everywhere. Um, my mom found my computer where he hid in it. And the police, you know, they said, you need to get a restraining order. And I, you know, I said, okay, I'll, I'll go on Monday and I'll get it. And I, I didn't um, when Monday came along because, again, I, I didn't want to hurt my ex. You know, I, I was like, it's clear he's in a mental health crisis and I just want to leave. I just want to get out. I'm going to be at my parents. And for about a month after that, things were okay. He ended up moving out of the house. He went to stay at one of his friend's places. Um, and 
then he started messaging me that, well, I can't stay at my friends anymore and you can't keep me out of the home. That's my house too. And again, that's my, it comes back to those misguided ideas about what being strong in that situation is. Because I, at the time was like, I'm not leaving my home. Like, this is my castle. I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay here. And I should have said, you know, fine, I'm, I'm gone. Um, but Instead, I stayed in the house and he came back into the house um, and it just started again, the manipulation and, um, but it, his mental health was at such a point, it was like a B-rate monster was trying to do all of his material. So he's telling me like that my family's on his side and they think that you have mental problems and your lupus meds have made you psychotic. And again, I have such strong relationships with my family it wasn't something I even considered. Um, but. So he's back in the house here mm-hmm. and he's putting on this act where you know everything that's coming out of his mouth is complete ball. Mm-hmm. Like how are you able to deal with that on a day-to-day basis? You know, it's obviously he's there. You're feeling some sense of guilt that he is there. Mm-hmm. So, but on a day to day, going to sleep has to be scary. You know, we, I, yes. you know, I don't know if I'm going to wake up. This person is shown they are unhinged, and now dealing with someone who's completely fake. And knowing that it's fake, like, is just eerie to be around. So, you know, if you could describe, like, what it was like to be there and, like, how you had to cope or what it was like. Is it possible to put that into words? Yeah, I mean, it was constant fight or flight. So it's just an immense amount of stress. And at this time, I was that kind of month period where he was out of the house and we weren't having contact, that gave me enough time that I could start formulating a plan of he's never going to get his shit in order to where we can get our finances in order before a divorce. So I just have to start figuring out what I'm going to do. Um, And I, you know, I realized if I am nice to him, then it's, less like his insanity is less so I was not being confrontational I kind of took a step back um because also at this time he was threatening um my cats that he'd gotten me for gifts um you know he'd adopted from the humane society and they were very clearly my cats, but he, you know, was saying, well, I bought them. I have the receipt. Those cats are going to stay with me. He's saying he's going to let them out. He's saying he's going to kill them. Um, and when I'm not reacting to things like this, he'd escalate and he would threaten, you know, my job. Um, so like a message he sent to me at this time, he said, you know, I can't wait to send the nasty stuff you said to your boss at work and your coworkers. I can't wait to post it on Facebook. Do you want to continue to threaten me? I have way more dirt on you, honey. 
You're going to do all this stuff to hurt me, and I'll make sure you suffer right along with me. Remember, you wanted to be divorced in a war. I tried to do it civilly. You wanted it to be a war. You're going to be upset with what you get, honey. So he's doing this, and if I do try and leave, then he's posting things on social media. Um, And just, so I'm trying to figure out how do I mitigate kind of this, the public kind of things he's doing and get out. And there's so many pieces and, uh, you know, I, I need to get a restraining order. I need him to stop from siphoning our money. I need to get a lawyer, but I'm in such a state of overwhelm. Like I just was paralyzed during this time. Like I just was really just motor movements going through, okay, I have to go to work and then I'm going to come home and sleep. Like I would just try and sleep as much as I could. Um, And in December of 2020, you know, of course my health at this time, one of the worst things for autoimmune diseases is stress. So my lupus was really, really bad. Um, and I was in a massive flare. And when that happens, uh, my joints, it feels uh, like I've had my hand slammed in a car door just by accident before, but that is the level of pain that my joints feel. Um, It's really, really painful. And I have prescription pain medication and I took some and it didn't work. And I poured some of the pills out and I looked at them and all the letters and numbers that kind of identify the pill, they, it looked like they'd been scratched out. And so I looked at another pill and another one and they'd all been scratched out. Um, and so someone had taken all my pain meds and replaced them with Tylenol. And I was in hysterics at this point and I confronted my ex and he just screamed at me so much and I was so afraid and he made me feel insane. And I left that night and I went and I stayed at a cheap motel because I, you know, again, I could have gone to my parents, but I just was that shame and like overwhelm that I, I just didn't, I, I don't know. I just wanted to be alone. But still it's amazing how shame can be so overpowering mm-hmm. where you know, combined with you feeling like you didn't want to be seen as weak. So you yeah. stayed in the home with this person to, you know, show yourself in a way being like, mm-hmm. I can take this and yes. you know, you're taking it. And it's, I mean, you voluntarily, like, I'm not going to say voluntarily, but it's like you are knew you were going into this war zone. I'm sure your family was like, what are you doing? Yep. Like that is not safe. So now that because that happened, the shame kicks in Mm -hmm. because of them probably saying that to you, I assume. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think honestly, my family is, you know, they never, I mean, one, my, my brother, who I have a difficult relationship with because of this, he's the only one that said, you know, I told you he was bad. You should have left him before. And, you know, this is your own fault now. But 
everybody else in my family was, this is not your fault. This is, you had nothing to do with this. This is 100% your ex. But it's just the internal shame. So I'd like to point out to people here, you know, how lucky you are in a way where you came from a very good family. You had very positive things your whole, like, entire life, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your family is, you know, well off or at least middle class, you know, and that a lot of people don't have the resources that you do and you have those resources and you still are in this spot. A lot of people who don't have those resources that were in your spot, this could have carried on a lot longer and been, you know, you're dealing with a terrible situation, but for someone who didn't have that kind of support system that you did, um, you know, the marriage might not have just been four years. It could have lasted a lot longer. Uh, the things people could have gotten in it deeper and, you know, it's good that you, like your support system helped you like that. Having that support, you know, is, is really key. Would you like for you? Absolutely. And I, I will talk a little bit later about my stepdaughter's mother because she does not have the kind of resources that I do. Um, she's such a strong, strong woman. Um, but you know, she's a stay at home mom, so she doesn't have the financial resources And being a stay-at-home mom, you're more isolated. She doesn't have the community um, of support. And he, I mean, he abused her. You know, I'll I'll tell, I'll bring in her story, um, but he continues to abuse her. So it's 10 years later that he's still doing it. Um, And I'm, you know, very, very... um, grateful and just I really when I think about my story it's terrifying to think about people who don't have these resources because I really have so many resources and this is so difficult and I it would have been not impossible but such a struggle if I didn't have it um and you know and now so going going back to the you know story of my pain medication is gone and uh, my ex, he's also really sick at this point. And, you know, now when I tell this story, everyone's like, how did you not see he was an addict? Um, but again, I, I have, I know people who are in recovery. I had never known somebody who was in active addiction. Um, and so when my ex is, you know, he's super sick and he's on the couch and he can't get up and I, you know, it's COVID time. Like I honestly thought like maybe he has COVID. Um, but it's, you know, now that I know it was clear he was going through withdrawals. Um, and I ended up on new year. I took him to the ER and I was so angry. Like I, was again, just so mad at the situation because he'd taken my pain pills. I was in so much pain and I'm bringing him to the ER and I picked him up the next day. And I, you know, I went back to being nice to him because I had to get information. And I said, you know, I, I just need you to tell me the truth. If you tell me the truth, we can fix this. We can get back together. You know, just tell me, did you take my pills? Like, do you have a problem? And he, 
you know, said yes. And he told me he was buying oxycodone um, to help with his PTSD, which, like, Jesus Christ, the goddamn PTSD again. Um, but he said, you know, my dealer, he sold me, um, you know, he said it was oxy, but it was actually fentanyl. And now I'm, you know, in it and I'm addicted and it's not my fault. And it's more just a lot of tears and tears and tears. And so the next day I was like, okay, I found a rehab. Like I went and I dropped him off. Um, and the next three days at the rehab, they like take your phone and you can't contact anyone. And it was such a wonderful time because I, you know, I'm expecting he's going to be at rehab for a month, but I'm going to have this whole time to get my stuff in order and get out. Um, but on day three, he was allowed to call me from the rehab phone. And he called and said, well, I'll have this whole uh, addiction thing kicked by Sunday. So I will see you then. I'll be back at the house. And it, it was just devastating. <laughs> like, to think that I was going to have this time away from him. And I wasn't going to. And I, you know, I said, absolutely not. I said, you, you cannot come here. And we had a three-way call with his counselor at the rehab. And I said, I am so angry at him. And I'm so afraid of him. I said, this is literally the worst place for him to leave rehab early and come to. Because I am not going to be supportive. I am angry. It is not going to go well. And, you know, the counselor said, well, there's nothing we can do. Um, so he came back to the house, um, and during that, you know, he was gone for a week at rehab, um, up to that point, he'd spent every cent we had, um, but he had, I found $5,000 in cash. And so I opened a private bank account and I put that money in there. And as you can imagine, when my ex came out of rehab after seven days, desperately wanting to buy drugs only to find that I'd taken the money he'd hidden, he flew through the wall. Um, and I, I thought he was going to kill me and he told me he was going to kill me. Um, and that was the point I packed a bag and I went to my parents. Um, and he just was sending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages to me, to my mom, to my stepdad, and my cats were still at the marital home um, because my parents have a dog that doesn't get along with cats. And so he's threatening the cats. He's saying, they're going to be let out. You're never going to see them again. Um, and at the same time, he was overdrafting the joint bank account to try and force me to deposit the money. And I remember this was in uh, like early first week of February. And I was at the bank and I was just crying to the bank teller and begging them, you know, please let, please take me off this account. Like I explained the situation and, um, you know, they said, we can't take you off the account because he's the primary. So I'm just going to get stuck with all these fees. Um, you know, and they said, if you get a protection order, we can take you off. That's the only way. And so again, like, gotta get that protection order but I just I didn't want to involve the police or the courts like it was just another thing and I was so overwhelmed like I I couldn't do it um and while this is all happening actually that same day that I'm at the bank and he's overdrafting it 
and he's telling me he's going to hurt my cat. He had my stepdaughter at the house for visitation. Um, and I knew that she, I had signed her up for a gymnastics class. So I knew that she had it that evening. So my plan was, you know, when he leaves to take her to that gymnastics class, I'm going to go to the house. I'm going to get my cats um, and then be done. And again, because he could track me with GPS, he knew that I was waiting kind of down the street from our house. And because of that, he sent me a message and said, I don't know what you're planning, but, you know, stepdaughter's class is canceled today. And I was just so done at that point. And this was really not a smart move. Um, but I, you know, I just said, fuck it. And I said, I'm, then I'm coming to the house now to get the cat. And I drove there. And as soon as I pulled up in the driveway, he comes flying out and he's screaming all kinds of vulgarities. Um, and he's filming me, um, you know, going, look at this, this fat cunt's not afraid of me. She's not afraid. If she was afraid, she wouldn't be here. Look, she thinks she needs a protection order because I had been telling him you have to stop or I'm going to get a protection order. Um, and so he's filming this to try and prove that I'm not afraid of him, but he's just looking insane. Um, but I, I just pointed to the living room window where I can see my stepdaughter sitting. And I said, she can hear everything. Like, do not do this. But he, you know, he didn't care. He's screaming, he's blocking my entrance. So I just, I went up to another door, I got inside and my stepdaughter's eight and she's sitting on the couch. And this is one of my, this is one of the hardest parts. Um, because as a step parent, I can't take her away. So I just said, it's, it's not okay for anyone to talk like dad is talking. And I said, I'm going to let your mom know. Um, and my stepdaughter, her eyes, they, they welled up with tears. And she said, I want you to tell my mom, but I'm afraid he's going to be mad. And that was such a sad point because you just want to take that little girl and take her away from him. Um, but the way, kind of the way things work, if I called the police, he wasn't doing anything to her. Um, so they would not have, you know, removed her. Um, so I, you know, I, at that point, I, I knew my presence being there was escalating my ex. So the best thing I could do for my stepdaughter was to just get the cats and get out. So I found one cat, I brought it to my car. And I came back to get the other one and my ex, he runs out and he lets that first cat out of the car and it runs off. And at least at that point, he had some small, like, shimmer of being a human. And he yelled at my stepdaughter and says, you know, we're going to gymnastics because, of course, the class wasn't really canceled. Um, but they... You know, she gets her stuff and they leave. And I have 15 minutes where, you know, I get my other cat in my car and I find the cat that my ex had let out. It was under the porch and I'm crawling on my stomach to try and get her. And 
you know, I've just grabbed her and I hear my ex's car peel back into the driveway. And that was such a moment of fear, um, you know, because now he doesn't have his daughter with him. Like, he's just going to come and kill me. But fortunately, I'm able to get to my car and I drive down the street. And once I'm far enough away, I just burst into tears. And, you know, I call my stepdaughter's mom and we're talking back and forth about what do we do? What do we do? Um, because my stepdaughter's mom is worried that if she goes to pick her up, my ex is going to escalate and he, you know, could be pushed over the edge and he could hurt his daughter. So my stepdaughter's mom and I, we talk that, okay, gymnastics class, it's done at eight. By the time that's done, it's bedtime. So he's just going to put her to bed and then, you know, he'll bring her back to, um, you know, to your house in the morning. So that was kind of what we said, okay, we're just going to pray that things go well. My stepdaughter's mom talks to her after the class um, and says, you know, she sounds okay. Um, but obviously our ex was right there. Um, and I have my ex blocked on almost everything. Um, but he, I keep my Facebook messenger open just to keep a pulse because he has my stepdaughter. And he's messaging me these horrible, horrible things. He's demanding I come apologize to her. And he's saying, you know, I'm going to email everyone, your mom's work, your dad's work. It's going to continue until you apologize. You fucked up good tonight. I was trying to fix your life so that we can get divorced, you fucking idiot. I'm never going to stop making sure you suffer. This little girl needs to talk to you. You talk to her. And he, we had a ring doorbell with the camera. And he tells me she's standing outside in front of the ring ready to talk to her. You talk to her. And I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't respond to him. But I look on my ring and he's making her just stand outside in front of the camera. Like, just awful, awful manipulative stuff. Um, and then he's threatening to share intimate photos of me. And he's sending me screenshots of, you know, work colleagues of mine that he has contact info for. And saying, you know, should I start with her? Um, and he's threatening to come to my parents' house. And he's, you know, he's saying, you had every chance to stop this. Um, and around midnight, I called a friend for support. And I didn't realize this, but we had a family phone plan and my ex was the like account holder. And with that, you can go through and see kind of all the calls that anybody on the phone plan is making. So my ex saw that I called my friend and he is beyond himself. How can you talk to someone else? Your husband's in a crisis begging you to talk to him and you talk to someone else. And he starts calling my friend over and over and saying, who is this person? Um, and then my ex is sending me a picture of these huge bruises. And he says, I, I tried to get money back from the dealer for you. And they beat me with a baseball bat. And I can't believe you don't care. I'm just going to kill myself. And then those suicide threats, they triple and quadruple. And at, two in the morning I'm so terrified for my stepdaughter that he is going to kill himself and either she's going to find him or that he's going to kill them both 
And so I call the police and I, you know, I say he has an eight year old with him, like just, just go and get the eight year old. Um, and I told him, I said, I am a safe person for her. Like I will come and get her. Um, and at two 30 in the morning, the police call me back and they say, you know, we had to bring him to the hospital for suicide ideation. Can you come and get your stepdaughter? So I go over, I bring her to my parents' house. Um, and the whole time with her, you know, even though it's such a stressful situation and I've been sobbing, once you're with her, you have to turn it off because you have to try and limit the trauma to the child. So I have her in the car and I just explain. I say, you know, when, you know, people get sick and they go to the hospital, I said, and the same thing can happen with people's brains. I said, and dad's brain is sick. I said, and that's why he was talking the way he was. And when people are sick like that, they have to get help. I said, and that's what's happening. And you're going to stay with me. And in the morning, we're going to go to mom's house. Um, but then at 4 a.m., the messages start again. And my ex has been released from the hospital because, you know, if you go in and you tell them, you know, no, I, 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 he said, I was just saying that to try and get my wife to talk to me. I don't have a plan. I don't want to kill myself. So they let him go. Um, and he was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. We didn't have a car. So he's walking home from the hospital and he's messaging me. Um, and at like 5am, he sends a message saying, I've already spoken to the police. You can't keep my daughter from me. I showed the psychiatrist at the hospital what you had texted me. And she said that I should really be upset with you and that you are just so cold, which is obviously a lie. Um, but he did call the police and he tried to get me arrested for kidnapping. Um, but things are in a real panic at my parents' house because he is, as soon as he gets to our marital home in his car, he's coming to my parents' house. Um, so we're all in a panic. It's, you know, five in the morning, but we're also trying very hard to pretend everything is completely fine because my stepdaughter is eight. Um, so we're calling the police. We're trying to figure out rights in this situation. And really, as the step-parent, I have none. Um, you know, they say if the hospital cleared him, you cannot withhold, you can't keep his daughter from him. Um, but finally, they say you can choose to bring her to either of her parents. So I'm on the phone with my stepdaughter's mom at this point. I'm like on the talking to the police on my mom's landline and I'm talking to my stepdaughter's mom on my cell phone. Um, so I say, great, great. I want to bring her to her mom. I'm heading out. Um, and as we're kind of getting out the door, the police call again and say, so your ex just called and said that um, your stepdaughter's mom said that you are abusive and that she does not want you driving her daughter, which is obviously a lie. Um, but I, you know, I give them my stepdaughter's mom's number and I say, you know, do I have to wait for you guys to confirm with her? Or can I go? Because he's coming here. And they say, no, 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 get, go, 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 get in the car. So pack my stepdaughter up. We get her in the car and, um, we hit the road and I try and turn on my map on my phone because my stepdaughter lives an hour away from my parents and I 
had been to her house a couple times, but I'm not really sure how to get there. Um, and my cell data is not working. So my ex had used the family plan to turn off my phone, but he kept the GPS tracking on for himself. And he's sending my parents screenshots um, of maps of where my stepdaughter and I were, insinuating that he's right behind us on the highway. And so the last message my parents received from him is that he was right behind us. And then here we go. So fortunately, he was bluffing, um, but my parents were terrified. Yeah, that, that is straight out of a horror movie. Yep. They obviously, you know, are trying to call me and it's either you know, going to voicemail or saying like this phone is out of service, whatever. Um, but I, I eventually, you know, I get lost getting to my stepdaughter's, uh, house. But if anyone's in that situation, McDonald's have free Wi-Fi, So I, you know, pulled up on the side and pulled up a map. Um, and then I, you know, got my stepdaughter home and her mom and I, we just hugged in the driveway and since that day you know I've become so close with my stepdaughter's mom and I've heard her story which is horrific um you know that story I told in the beginning that really well-crafted one where my ex just threw a coffee cup that wasn't what he did um he choked her to the point of unconsciousness and he would berate her before visitation to where she was too terrified to get in the car and too terrified to bring her daughter anywhere near him. Um, and, you know, that comes back to where she doesn't have those resources. So she can't afford a lawyer who's going to say, you know, you can't skip visitation because that's going to come back on you. Like there's other ways we can go around this, but we can't do it this way. Um, and so she, you know, is doing what she could with what she had. Um, and it, it, that relationship has been so invaluable because this situation is so insane. I mean, it is like a lifetime movie. And that is the one other person who gets it. Like, she knows entirely because she lived it. Um, and so she's been a real sense of strength for me, and I've been a sense of strength for her, which has been, you know, something really wonderful that's come out of this. Um, and she's just a wonderful woman, and, you know, she's made it clear that I am her daughter's stepmom, like, my divorce, that it, that doesn't matter. I am always going to be her stepmom. And so she always lets me, whenever I want to see my stepdaughter, take her for an overnight, anything like that, I'm always more than welcome to. Um, so I, you know, after dropping my daughter, uh, my stepdaughter off, I left and I headed to the courthouse by my parents' house to finally file for that protection order. Um and I pulled into the parking lot and there was no parking spots. And I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. And I just like stopped my car in the parking lot. And there was a police officer walking by and he waved at me and I rolled down my window and I just burst into tears. And I said, you know, I need a protection order. And he was so nice. 
Um, and he told me, you know, you actually have to go to a different courthouse. And he gave me directions. And so I went there and I pulled in. Um, and at that courthouse, there was only one car in the public parking lot. And it was my ex's. And I had a complete panic attack. I thought that he was there to kill me. Um, so I drove around um, to an employee lot and I called the police. And that same officer that I just talked to at the other courthouse, he was the one that came and he escorted me into the building and he put me in a private room and he brought in the temporary protection order paperwork that I had to fill out. And when he came in, he was visibly upset, um, you know, and he said, this is ridiculous. He's in front of the judge right now requesting an order against you. Um, and I was like, what? Because, uh, you know, what? what is my ex going to request one for? Um, and again, because I, I had no experience with this, what I didn't know is that if you're fine with lying on a court document, like, I could get a restraining order against you. I could say that we were talking and you told me that you were going to kill me. And they would grant me a temporary protection order, which I am glad that it is that easy to get one, but it presents these abusers kind of this additional way to continue the abuse. Um, so while I'm filling out mine, they bring me his order against me, which has been granted, uh, which is just like a complete mindfuck. <laughs> and I, I read it and then among some other choice gems, um, you know, where he said that I stole his phone and texted myself to try and frame him and make him look guilty. Um, he said that I told him, you piece of shit, I'm going to get your drug dealer friends to kill you. Which, ugh, I mean, like, if you're going to lie, a little effort. Like, if I was going to kill him, I wouldn't be recruiting his friends for the job. <laughs> But that was, that's what he said. Um, but my order got granted as well. And my ex, they had him stay at the courthouse so they could serve him immediately. And he asked the officer if we could talk. He said, you know, this just got out of control. If we just talk, everything's going to be fine. And the officer was just so over his shit. Um but because we now have these dueling protection orders, and because I've been staying at my parents, they say, well, your ex is going to stay at the marital home. Um, but that, you know, he's going to leave two afternoons a week so that I could go and get my mail and possessions um, until we can go to court and get things figured out. And this, I think when people, you know, kind of have that thought of why aren't people leaving these relationships? Like, why aren't you leaving sooner? Um, is the stuff that's going to happen now it is worse than anything that had been happening before. Um, so now I have a protection order, but things really start to ramp up going nuts on social media. Um, you know, he's claiming that I have bipolar disorder and uh, saying, you know, I, I miss my wife so much, her body's incredible, our sex life, and like posting just these embarrassing things. Um, he's messaging all of my friends, all of my family, 
um, you know, he's messaging my dad, like maybe like 50 messages where he's begging for his help, help, help me be a better person, help me get her back. Um, I have to have her back. Our sexual connection, we'd have sex for hours. And I'm like, what is he talking about? Just making up stuff. And he would, you know, I'm reporting this to the police. And they said, well, you know, that's not a violation. Because he'd start every message with, I'm not violating my order. Please do not tell Saturday I contacted you. But of course my friends and family are going to tell me. Um, And so it was just overwhelming um of like every 10 minutes somebody would say hey your ex sent me this hey your ex sent me this um and at this time i did right after i got the protection order the next thing i did was i started calling around for lawyers um and i had um, done a consult with a lawyer and gotten really good vibes from her. And, you know, again, it comes back to being so fortunate to have a family with resources because my parents said, yep, here's the check for the retainer. Um, which thank goodness we did that because my ex is continuing to track all my calls. Any lawyer I would call, he would call immediately to try and talk to them first so that they couldn't, um, represent me. And so we actually did that a half hour after I'd spoken to my lawyer and, you know, said, I want to retain you. He called her um, and they said, you know, we're, we're not able to talk with you. And he just said, prepare for war and hung up the phone. But he is also at this time posting all the time on social media that he's within a mile of my parents' house. So he's driving by their house. My stepdad would leave work and my ex would drive by. Um, and why he was doing that is he chose to go to AA meetings in my parents' town rather than doing it in the town that our marital home is or any other place. Like he picks so that he's always, always right by my parents' house. So I felt like I couldn't leave the house. Um, and I also, I knew he was tracking my phone, but I was just so overwhelmed with everything. Um, you know, I didn't, it didn't really register. Um, and my stepdaughter's mom had called me and we talked for 15 minutes. And then I realized, and I said, oh, you know, hold on. He's going to see that we talked. Let me call you from my parents' landline. Let me give you that number. Um, and I said, you know, so I called her there so we could talk more. And I said, you know, if he asks you about this, tell him that I called to, you know, say goodbye to my stepdaughter. Um, but he, of course, saw, you know, that we'd had that 15-minute conversation and he lost it on my stepdaughter's mom. Um, and he, you know, he told her that if she didn't tell him what we discussed, that he was going to kill her that he was going to kill um, her kids, her family, and then that he was going to slit my throat. So she tells me this, and I, you know, I say, okay, like, now you have to get a protection order. So she went, and she got one um, for her and her daughter. Other things during this time, you know, that I could go to the house when he was supposed to be gone, and I would always... So just one question before you get into that. So you say that the daughter was able to get one. How rare is that? I mean, I 
don't know okay. <laughs> because I this is my kind of first foray into this, but I do, you know, I have to imagine that his history where he had the protection order um, previously, you know, uh, seven years previously, um, my stepdaughter's mom had against him and that he violated it and that he at that time had to do supervised visits. Um, you know, I think that may have played a part of it as well, as well as having, you know, all the times that I'd been calling the police and making reports. Um, and as part of that as well with, um, when my stepdaughter's mom, you know, went to the courthouse and filled out the paperwork that triggered also a DHHS call. Okay. Um, and so DHHS got involved and that my ex thought that I called DHHS and, you know, again, is posting on social media and very upset with me. Um, but so it, that was like the one glimmer of good in all of this was thank God that stepdaughter doesn't have to see him because he is so unhinged. Um, and thank God, you know, DHHS and the protection order said, nope, like there's not going to be any visitation, no communication until we can figure this out. And he also at this time, you know, when I would go to the house um, to get my mail or things and I would always bring someone with me because, again, just that fear that he's going to come here and kill me. Um, and the house was just a horror story. Like my ex in 2020, he had started doing renovations despite having no experience. He had no experience um, doing any kind of home construction, carpenting, plumbing, anything. But he ripped apart our bathroom um, and the flooring. And I think that was part of his abuse of to try and get me to stay. Because again, since he knows so many people in the state, he knows all the contractors. And he'd say, you know, you're never going to be able to afford to fix this house. So you have to stay with me until I can get my my friends to come and, you know, fix it. And now when I'm going to the house, there's just holes in the wall. And he's like painted, but he's painted all over the ceiling and it's on the floor. Um and he'd also leave to-do lists to himself on the counter because um, he can't have communication with me, but he would leave to-do lists and they would say things like, number one, pay bills. Number two, director of international accounts interview, Friday, which wouldn't have an interview. Number three, how do I get Saturday to love me again? I'll do anything. Number four, does Saturday know about my relationship with her sister? It shouldn't matter. It was before, which he never had an affair with my sister, but he's just so desperately trying. What can I put down that will get a reaction? Um, and then he put down, um, you know, no PFAs, I'll move out. Keep PFA, I keep the house. So he had a lawyer at this point, um, and they were trying to get me to drop my protection order. 
Um, you know, his lawyer would send my lawyer things saying it's clear that Saturday enjoy, enjoys playing the victim. It's clear that she enjoys, you know, getting to go to the police, but there is no need for this protection order. She needs to drop it. And if she does, you know, X will drop his. And if she doesn't, Saturday needs to understand that she will most likely lose her job when it comes out that she is abusive. Um, which just it was really shitty. Like, I, I understand that everybody deserves representation. But when you're in such a hard place and then you have this lawyer, you know, saying these things... Um, that was really hard and I really appreciate my lawyer at this time for kind of keeping me on track and you know and she'd say you know that we we can never know how court's going to go but she said I would not worry that you're going to lose your job I would not worry that his protection order is going to get granted um and you know, and she also made sure that I was reporting things to the police. Um, like another time when I went into the house, um, my ex, he had her wedding photos all sprawled across the bed. He had my clothes that he was using as pillowcases, and he printed and framed a nude um, selfie of me, like just on printer 8 by 11 and he put it on the nightstand. Um and that was just like, a, he has lost his mind. Like, this guy's going to kill me and, like, fill me with formaldehyde and sleep next to my body. And so my lawyer was like, you have to call the police and report that. That's a violation of the PFA. And I, even at that point, I was like, I, I don't want to get him in trouble. Like, I, I, he's in a mental health crisis. I, I don't want to get him in trouble. And she... You know, she was like, I swear to God, you're going to go to the police now and do this. But in a in a nice way, you know, she said, we're going to hang up. You're going to call the police. And then I want you to call me back and tell me what they said. Um, and, you know, so I, I did. I was reporting things and documenting. And that's really important to do in this situation. Um, but the best thing I did was that I can, I... can I just say one thing? Yes. Because you say he's in a mental health crisis and we also are dealing with someone who has an addiction problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, before the mental health crisis or whatever is going on, before the addiction, when everything was normal, he was still an abusive person. Yes. And before your relationship with him, he was also a very abusive person. Yes. And, you know... When he was in control of his life and things were going okay for him personally, he was very masterful at everything he was doing. And as soon as he lost control of his own personal life and standing, he became unhinged. That person was always in there. Like so, when we say mental health or his addiction, you know, yeah, the the addiction spiraled, but that abuser is always there, mm-hmm. and uh, when someone became desperate, the desperation of someone who's an abuser goes 
unhinged and he's grasping at every straw that he can because his mastery of control is gone and he's doing everything possible to try and gain that control back and the nuanced version of him is completely gone I mean, yeah. it's just gone, and there's no going back. And once that's slipped, he knows he can't go back. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to figure out any which way he can in this desperate way to gain that control back in any possible way. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, at this point, I'm still so much in it that I, I'm still thinking of him as that person I fell in love with versus now, you know, I know that that person didn't exist. Um, And so once I, you know, as time went on and I was able, I essentially said to myself, he is not a human. He is an alien and you have to see him as an alien and nothing he does is going to make sense because he's not human. And so you have to just forget about everything and approach it this way. Um, because even, you know, in this time where he's caused me so much fear, so much abuse, so much trauma, like I still am, have kind of that guilt for that person that I love that doesn't exist. Um, and that was definitely why having that lawyer who, you know, was very methodical and logical to help me along and say, no, you, you need to report this. Like you, you have to do this. Um, but the other, the best thing I did during this time was I told everyone, everybody, everybody at my work knew, like I ripped off that shame, that shame bandaid where I didn't want people to know. And I, you know, you don't have to tell people, obviously this is a very long story. Um, but the gist of it and, People were so supportive Um, and, you know, I don't want to stereotype, but it's usually a lot of men um, that are abusive in this way. And I work with a lot of women and every single one of them either had their own abuse story or they had an abuse story of a loved one. Um, And that was really shocking to me that why don't we talk about this? You know, that why was I feeling so ashamed to bring this up? And then when I'm doing it, this is such a common experience. Um, And that, it just helped so much to have that huge community of support behind me. Um, And meanwhile, while this is all going on, my ex is continuing to stalk me, um, driving by my parents' house. Um, And one of the things my lawyer, you know, did is she requested any police log with his name on it. Um, And there is one police report that was dated three days after the protection orders were granted. And in it, the officer noted, he said, it is apparent that my ex is seeking a loophole in his protection order and is checking to see what his limits were. Um, because he called the police to ask um, 
he was asking if it would be a violation if I drove by the marital house and if I waited by his work, which I wasn't doing, but he was calling to see if he could do those things. Um, and then around this time, he also posted a Facebook memory um, where he was at a gun range and the caption he wrote, my accuracy is legit sniper level. And I, at this time, I just got in promoted at work and I, you know, I'd been promoted to be the director and I'm trying to run my company and I'm in 8 million Zoom meetings and my lawyer is blowing up my phone and I leave the Zoom meeting I'm in and I, you know, check my messages and she's saying, he is going to kill you. Like, you have to take this as a threat, this gun post. Um, So I left work. She said, I need you to come to my office immediately. And my lawyer's office was in lockdown. They had everything locked because they were afraid he was going to go there. And she'd done a background check on him and found out that he had multiple protection orders out of state, including a permanent one. Um, and if you have a protection order, you are a restricted person. You're not allowed to even touch a gun. Um, so at the time that video was taken, it had been taken a couple years prior he had a permanent protection order out against him. Um, so that was a federal offense. Um, so she, you know, gave me all the info. My lawyer was really on top of it. She had like a flash drive with a video on it and the laws printed. And I reported that to the police and gave them a statement. Um, and it was just so overwhelming. Like all of this stuff just keeps happening. This is still February. This is the same month that I got the protection order. And towards the end of the month, my I got a call from my ex's bank and they say, hey, we have some weird checks here. And my ex had found an old checkbook of mine. The account um, had been closed years earlier, but he'd found the checkbook. He'd written himself over $5,000 worth of checks and he'd forged my name to them and he'd cashed them. So again, I'm having to leave work. Um, I'm dealing with that. I'm getting copies of the check because I have to you know, I could get in trouble. Um, you know, if they say that you sign this, this is a worthless instrument, I could be in trouble for that. Um, so I have to go and get all the copies and report it to the police. And finally, the police were like, okay, this is enough. We're going to issue a warrant. Um, and then on March, um, kind of mid-March, the police called me and I thought they were calling to say he'd been arrested. But instead they said, we don't want to alarm you, um, but X, has, X is in the hospital. Uh, there is a noose in your basement, and there was a suicide note, but we've taken it. So I go to my house, and, I mean, he had tied a chain to a garden hose, and he'd hung it four feet from the ground and toppled a chair next to it. Like, there was no way that it could be used to hang himself. It was very clear that it was attention seeking. Um, and, but he's at the hospital. And so I go through the house, there's even more damage done. Um, and I see the computer in the bedroom is kind of lighting up and my ex had his Apple account hooked up to it. So his iMessages were coming through. And so I could see the messages that he's texting people. Um, and he's in the hospital and he's pissed and he's saying that he just went there because he wanted, he wanted it documented that I was mentally abusing him 
and now the hospital won't let him leave. And he's just going to, you know, be an asshole to them until they treat him with respect. And he's also telling his friends that I set him up with the checks. And they're all saying, you know, Saturday's so evil. She's such a terrible person. You're such a good person. We're here for you. And that it's really frustrating. That's been something I've had to just kind of let go of having someone just slander you with obvious lies and, you know, not fight back. Like I wanted to reach out to his friends and be like, Hey, here's the checks. Like here's the copies. It's clearly forged. Um, but there's, you know, there's no purpose to doing that. Um, and then when he was released from the hospital, they put him on an involuntary hold for, I think, four or five days. Um, and when he got out the next morning, the police arrested him on four counts. So he had felony domestic violence stalking, felony forgery, felony theft, and then a misdemeanor PFA violation for framing that nude selfie of me. Um, and this was like, it's a small victory and then nothing because... He's out of jail the next day on bail. Um, And meanwhile, of course, I'm paying every single bill at the house because he's saying he has no money, but he has bail money. Um, And then we're just going back and forth with the lawyers until June. Um, And at this time, I have had the time to go through the finances. And during October to January, he'd taken out $80,000 from the marital account. And there's no record to where that had gone. Um, And he had told my mom earlier um, when he was, you know, messaging my family that his addiction was so bad, he was spending $1,000 a day on oxycodone. Um, But his lawyer is messaging mine saying, well, Saturday is also a drug addict. And we know that. And she was using just as many drugs as he was. And again, it's just, so infuriating like you've done all this and now you're gonna just come up with lies um and but you just have to let it go um and in april i had to testify in front of a grand jury and kind of tell the story um so that they could vote to indict on all four counts and that meant that the state was going to take the case um And that scared my ex a little. Um, And so his lawyer said, okay, how about this? We will drop his protection order. Saturday can keep hers. Saturday can keep the house. But we just want Saturday to tell the district attorney that she doesn't want ex to have any jail time. And that was shitty. um, Because I didn't want that. It, It felt so unfair um, but I, I needed my house because my ex, he destroyed my credit. He took every dime I had. I, I wouldn't be able to get an apartment. Um, and so it didn't feel good to say, okay, I agree to this plea deal. And the plea deal, it was 364 days in jail, all but 10 suspended. So that means he'd only actually have to go to jail for 10 days. Um, and that they would drop the felony theft and forgery charges because they said, think about his ability to find work if he had those on his record. 
Um, and the DV, the domestic violence um, felony would go on his record, but if he had a year of good behavior, it would be reduced to a misdemeanor. And then he would do that same domestic violence class that he'd done with my stepdaughter's mom that he'd excelled at. Um, and I just, I felt so sick. Like, I just felt so low. And the only thing that was really keeping me going was, you know, I had my family and I had my friends. Um, and I had started weekly therapy. Um, it took three months to find someone with an opening, but I got in with a psychologist. Um, and I had moved back into my house. Um, and that friend that I'd actually called that night when my ex was threatening to kill himself, um, he'd actually moved to stay with me because I couldn't stay in my house alone. I was so terrified my ex was going to kill me. Um, and so it was really nice to have a friend there with me. Um, and, you know, I thought this was just the best way to get this done. So my lawyer, she stayed up all night crafting a divorce agreement and she sent it to my ex's lawyer and my ex refused to sign it. He said, we want Saturday to talk to the district attorney first before we sign anything, which I knew meant that he would just go back on his deal immediately. Um, so at that point, I was so angry. And then my ex also said that he would like one of the cats <laughs> and that just like pushed me over the line. And I, you know, I said, we're going to burn it down. Like I told my lawyer, I said, I want to fight. I don't want to do a deal. I want to fight. I'm all done. Um, so I wrote a statement and sent it to the district attorney. Um, you know, and I said, this is, this deal is completely unacceptable. Um, and I, you know, one of the lines I said in that letter, I said, one has to wonder how many chances, how many domestic violence classes, how many deferred jail times, how many dismissed charges this state is going to allow its repeat offenders. You know, did my ex ever once worry about my career when he's threatening to get me fired or to share intimate pictures of me? with my coworkers as I'm now being asked to consider the ramifications to his career should a harsher sentencing be issued. Um, and it was just so difficult to wrap my head around the idea that they're saying sentencing is going to negatively impact his career rather than any consequences that he faces are due solely to his decision to commit crimes. And getting myself in that mindset was important to not feeling guilt and not feeling like I was getting him in trouble. He was in trouble because he broke the law. Um, and at this time, my stepdaughter's mom, her trial for her protection order, it had been pushed out a bunch, um, but it was about to happen. And she was going to go by herself because, again, she doesn't have as many resources. She can't afford a lawyer. Um, but a lawyer in my lawyer's office had heard the story, um, and he said, I'll, I'll help her for free. And um, during this time as well, my ex finally relented, and he agreed to grant my protection order and drop his. And because that had just happened, my lawyer said, 
you know, it's probably not good for you to go and support your stepdaughter's mom because you just got your protection order. Um, but I had been planning to, and my mom had been planning to go. Um, and, you know, my lawyer said, that's fine if your mom goes in. So we, um, I drove my mom to the courthouse for my stepdaughter's mom's um, protection order hearing. And this was a time where I was so appreciative for my family. Um, because my ex, he took every cent I have, he ruined some years of my life, but I never be able to buy the family I have. Um, you know, and my stepdaughter's mom, her mother wasn't able to go with her that day. And I just, I couldn't love my mom more. And, you know, when she went and she hugged my stepdaughter's mom and she went with her into that courthouse. Um, and it's just that kind of that community, that village. And that's, again, that really wonderful thing that came out of it where my stepdaughter's mom was really isolated dealing with this. And so now she has all of this support with her fight against him. Um, and my ex was not expecting to see my mom at the courthouse and he ran out crying. Um, and you know, I'm in the car in the parking lot and I see him and I dive into the back seat and I'm having a panic attack. And you would think seeing somebody who's caused you so much pain, um, upset would feel good. Like seeing somebody so awful upset would feel good, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't feel good to see someone hurting. Like my ex, he's a wicked, terrible person, but his pain, it doesn't make mine go away. Um, and really the worst punishment for him is he has to live inside his own head. Like he is trapped in that burning building and that chaos. Um, and it's just, it's a sad situation. Um, so there's that balance of recognizing it's a very sad situation and I feel bad that he has to live like that, but I also think he needs to have consequences and he needs to be stopped. Um, but my stepdaughter's mom's protection order got granted. The judge said my ex could only see my stepdaughter through supervised visitation at the discretion of um, her social workers and the lawyer agreed to continue to help pro bono to help my stepdaughter's mom to try and get full custody. So that's a really wonderful piece of this. Um, and that was June. <laughs> um, and it was just more back and forth, back and forth with trying to get the divorce done. Um, and my ex's lawyer, you know, he said that they wanted to know in advance that I wouldn't go into court demanding jail time. Um, and that if I did that, you know, my ex basically would not agree to anything in the divorce. Um, and that they no longer wanted me to have the house. And the reason that they didn't was because my ex was getting jailed because I contacted the DA's office um, you know, and told them I wasn't okay with the deal. And again, that just felt so shitty. And I sent that email to the district attorney and said, how is this not intimidating? 
to witness. Like, how is this not tampering? But I'm being told if I come and say that I want my ex to have to face the consequences for the felonies, the multiple felonies he's committed, that if I do that, he's going to make my life hell through the legal system with my divorce. And they said, you know, this is really shitty behavior, but it doesn't cross the line to intimidation, which I don't agree with, but is what it is. Um, And then in August, that lawyer dropped him. He withdrew from the family case um, because my ex was not paying him. Um, And a few weeks later, my ex got a new lawyer who was not such a terrible person. (laughs) Um, And through that, we finally got it agreed that I would get to keep my house um, since my ex had caused so much damage to it and that any equity there would be, he had spent his share of it on drugs. Um, And finally, at the end of October, my divorce was granted and I could keep my house. And it was such a relief. Um, And so that's where I'm at now, where I am continuing going to therapy weekly, um, you know, and I will go and testify at my ex's criminal trial in December. You have, you were able to tell your story, a lot of stuff, intricate stuff, and you did it uh, unbelievably. Um, you, You were putting words in people's mouths, giving people a vocabulary that they didn't have before. And you really just did a, a, a really good job today um, in helping people. And you should be proud of that. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot that you went through. Yeah. Um, you know, so with your healing now, which is still early, Mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing with trauma, PTSD. Um, what have you been able to do to, you know, help yourself and cope and heal? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to share the story was listening to other people's stories really helped me during this time um, to kind of help understand what had happened and to get some of that language. Um, And the other piece, therapy, was so, so important. Um, And back in February, I mean, I couldn't sleep. I was having intrusive thoughts. I was on edge. um, And I, even being in my house, I was unable, um, you know, to be on the third floor of my house because there wasn't an easy exit. Um, And I would have panic attacks and that was really hard to deal with. And I felt, um, I, I don't know that I'd be able to process all of that by myself. It was very important to have a psychologist kind of helping me through. And one of the hardest pieces kind of in the aftermath of that, I had that very good friend who, um, you know, came to stay with me. And this is somebody that I met um, when I was working abroad. So I've known this person about a decade now, um, you know, a very, very, very good friend. Um, and he had been here like a month or two and 
I just kept expecting him to do things that my ex had done. Like if he had any emotion other than just being calm, I would spiral that he was on drugs. Um, and I would know that that wasn't logical. So I wouldn't tell him, but I would just spiral and spiral and spiral. And I couldn't get myself to stop obsessing about it. And I shared this with my psychologist and he said, you know, you, you have to tell your friend those thoughts. Um, and he said, don't make a big deal out of it. Just tell him, Hey, one of the ways this trauma is affecting me is that I'm projecting things that my ex did onto you. And when that happens and these thoughts come, you know, my psychologist said, you just need to say, you know, Hey, are you on drugs right now? And your friend's going to answer yes or no. And then, you know, that's going to be it. And you move on. And I started doing that and it worked so well. And that's something I would never have thought to do on my own. Um, but then another month later, my friend, you know, he's working remotely and there was some issue, you know, with the internet, he was just annoyed, typical, like annoyance. And I had a full panic attack and I was telling myself like, Hey, you're not afraid of him. Like, this is your best friend. You're not afraid of him. You've seen him mad. He doesn't escalate. And I couldn't stop the panic. And that was such a devastating feeling. Um, and I tried to do what my psychologist said. And I tried to think of, you know, what question to ask. And the question was, are you going to hurt me? And I asked it and I burst into tears at my friend you know, he said, you know, no, what, what's wrong? And I, I just was sobbing and I said, I don't want to be afraid of you, but I am like, I couldn't stop my body from feeling afraid. And I relayed this to my psychologist and I said, you know, I just, I think my brain is broken. Like I, this is my best friend and I am afraid of him. And I, I don't think I'm going to get better. I think my brain's broken. And my psychologist at that time said, you know, your brain isn't broken, but if you keep telling yourself that it is, it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we've got to put in some different kinds of self-talk during these moments. And that's another one of those really important things that I'm glad I was in therapy so that I could have somebody else kind of talk me through that difficult time. Um, and it was just like, you know, when I moved back to the States with lupus and I was so sick and so depressed and I don't think I'm ever going to get better. People are telling me I'm going to get better and this is going to get easier, but I don't see it. Um, but then all of a sudden I did get better and it's the same thing with this, but you have to do the work to get there. And it is a lot of work, um, but it, you know, now when I look back to where I was in February, I'm a completely different person. And I know in another year, I'm going to be even better. Um, and so that's really, really important to have that outside person helping to be doing the work and to know that it's a process. So for everyone listening right now, if you had words of wisdom and advice for them, what would you say? Yeah, I think, I mean, Number one, ripping off that shame band-aid. Tell your community what's going on. Tell people. Um, and if they don't react, 
positively, they're not people you want in your community. Um, so make sure you're getting that help and then realize that that person that you loved doesn't exist. So like I talked about when I shifted to that mindset where, okay, my ex is a literal alien and he's not going to engage like a human. And I have to just do this like a, you know, I'm doing a business relationship with an alien. Um, and that was really important to kind of getting out and not being sucked in by the guilt or the, well, what happened to the person I love? Um, and if you're in this situation now where you're feeling like you're in that burning building, understanding it's so important to get out and give yourself time to process. And it's not weak to get out and go stay with your parents or go stay with your friends. Um, you know, that's what you need to do to be able to process and make a plan. Well, Saturday in, in the history of the show, we've had many different stories being told. Um, and yours was, you know, if, to me, it felt like I, I really lived everything that you went through. And it's hard to tell the story that way, where you, you've really lived every single step. Uh, and you did it in such a way that um, it's impossible not to remember your story. And that people will walk around thinking of this story and when they're going through these situations. And that what will be possibly popping in their head would be, well, what did Saturday do? And I think that that's going to happen. I think that's, you know, that's going to happen. How did, how did this person, how did Saturday deal with that? What did she have to encounter? Cause there's so many little tiny things here, especially in the post uh, separation part and the things you did right. And the things that you did wrong and all the lessons that you threw out for everyone. And you had so many lessons in there and you're going to help a lot of people um, to help them maneuver themselves out of these situations as well. Um, so I just want to thank you for being here uh, with me today and sharing your story. Uh, cause I know you're gonna help so many people cause you told your story so well today and, uh, you should be proud as I said before. So, uh, thank you very much for being here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to pay it forward and share my story after listening to so many helped me so much. So from myself in Saturday, we hope you have a good night.